Thrive, flourish, unleash your buried treasure. This is the Exponentially Empowered Podcast with Joel Bine. Through conscious action and authentic self-connection, empower yourself to write your own script. So I'm thrilled to be joined by my friend Wes Bertrand, who is coming from the island of Saipan today. And Indeed. Wes, yeah, Wes has influenced me incalculably the past 10 years since I first heard him on the School Sucks podcast with Brett Finot, who was our guest a couple weeks ago. And Wes is host of Complete Liberty Podcast and Healthy Mind Fit Body Podcast. He's authored several books, including Complete Liberty Inside Out, which I highly recommend. Uh, he has degrees in psychology and counseling psychology. He's forever curious, a forever right. curious mind in all directions from the depths, the depths of the individual mind to the widest macroeconomics. Uh, so welcome, Wes. So, ha- so happy to have you. Thanks much, Joel. That's a pretty awesome introduction. I think it's not so much me that's been the influence as the ideas that have gone through my brain and out into the airwaves, you know? It's this memetics, memetics. Um, I ran across this guy's website talking about spiral dynamics and integral theory. You know, it's Ken Wilber. Spiral dynamics is, I guess, is Don Beck. And there's another guy. And there's some controversy between the two, but anyway, he wrote a book about memetics, and that's what they kind of look at is how these systems travel through time and in people's brains, you know? And so, yeah, I like to look at the big picture stuff and systemic issues and influences because I think that's typically the elephants in the room, you know, that aren't being mentioned, huh? Yeah, and unfortunately, the curiosity for many people stops and not able to kind of understand what's going on in the, the bigger picture and seeing that elephant in the room. And that's what I really appreciate about what you bring is sort of this clarity in the worldview, but also teamed with a compassionate lens because there's a lot of people sort of doing one or the other, like they're working with their heart or they're working with their head. And the ideal is to merge the head and the heart so you're thinking clearly to feel deeply feeling deeply to think clearly and I've always appreciated that sense of clarity that you bring to the philosophy and the economics seeing the nature of the the structures and systems but then also saying okay here's the psychological reason for that and going into the childhood trauma and understanding these coercive sort of power over paradigms that are the psychological motivation for the sort of economic and systemic structures, you know? We live in a set of cultures around the world that don't have as much integration as they can have. So how do we, how do we get from here to there, you know? Yeah, and I, I love that concept and that word integration, but I'm curious how you would define that. Hmm. Well, it's hard to define it without referring to Dan. <laughs> Because sure. he's spent a lot of time talking about this energy flow 
in the interpersonal space as a part of consciousness, you know, to the point where I kind of part ways with him because he somewhat um, is antagonized by the idea of self. Like he thinks that a sort of an isolated self is responsible for a lot of the world's problems. And of course it kind of, I think blends into this sort of leftist perspective on politics where you have an antipathy towards capitalism and profit seeking and property rights. But, you know, as voluntarists, we know that those are really sound concepts for individual flourishing and, and interpersonal flourishing. So I think because Dan's not focused on that giant elephant in the room called government, and he's not an explicit anarchist, right, that can trip up this whole process of making sense of integration. But nonetheless, within the framework that he offers, you know, it's this linking of these disparate parts, right? finding commonalities or what objectivists would call the conceptual common denominator, no matter how different the concepts seem, you know, being able to integrate them means to put them in the context of reality and to understand them in a comprehensible way. Right. So Rand defined logic as the, the process or the method of non-contradictory identification. So that, that means like putting the concepts in their specific places based on the definitions that they've been described, right. To what in reality to those, concepts refer and then how can we make sense of that in relation to other concepts so defining our terms is really important you know yeah so it's basically making sense of reality of the world seeing information come into the five senses and then trying to sort that out and that's what we're born doing that's what we're programmed to do or to employ our minds and figure out how the world works but then sort of these distorted paradigms of parenting, schooling, oftentimes religion, as well as government, these sort of structures. Yeah, the, the four big in. domination systems, right? Yeah. Yeah, they, they sort of distort our mind because they're often, well, they're based upon uh, obedience and listening to that authority figure no matter what your mind actually thinks. And so it's sacrificing the mind itself, right? Yeah, and even the mind of the authority figure. You know, it's a real trick that humans play in each other with this, the domination <clears throat> thinking, right? It's a, as Rosenberg would say, it's a tragic way to express unmet needs for safety, security, um, efficacy, competence. You know, if you want to be the authority, you want to be looked up to, that you matter, you know, to have a sense of self-worth. But the tragic way it's expressed causes a lot of sacrifice of needs for respect, for understanding, for empathy, for fairness and justice and clarity. You know, so the clarity need is something that us as conceptual beings need to nourish lest we fall prey to a whole bunch of different domination systems. And I guess you could say the family system and the religious system may or may not be domination-oriented. But we know for sure that the schooling system is and the governmental system. Like, those are manifestations of unprocessed trauma within a world that reflect basically distrust, distrust in individuals, and in your intrinsic motivation. Like, there's no way you're going to learn things, Joel, without being told what to study and what what's going to be, you know, the test is going to be on, you know, and how to jump through all these hoops that other people have put before you that, now certify you as given you know the stamp of approval by the authorities and then with government like you couldn't possibly spend your money in the way that you want to because 
there's there are other people in a system called government that knows better what to do with your money and your resources and even your own life in the case of like you know drafting people in the military and all that stuff so it's like massive distrust massive fear massive control measures and that you know reflects how we grew up in family systems the amount of distrust and the was really interesting is the and we've talked about this before um how this intergenerational transfer of trauma keeps on going you know and where it actually started why why is it that humans seem more prone to engage in this domination thinking the moralistic judgment and it took me a while to sort of you know extirpate that from my consciousness even though it's 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 readily there because of the all the cultural influences that we have you know the the name calling the blaming the shaming just seems so natural but it's actually just habitual right because it's what we grew up with this sort of denigration of our efficacy and worth based on these moralistic judgments good bad right wrong you know it's it's kind of a shorthand way to get at some needs but yeah but because it's not making those needs clear and explicit they tend to fall off the table you know so i like try to figure out reflect on why it is that family systems are not oriented towards curiosity and openness and acceptance and love or balance and resilience and insight and empathy you know maybe it's because the negativity bias is so prominent for us and that triggers us into a state of fight flight or freeze you know the the traumatic sort of reliving of trauma um that's probably a big component maybe it's just because it, it requires more effort when you grew up in systems that didn't really pay attention to needs and didn't focus on emotional needs very much so it becomes kind of self-fulfilling prophecy most people are like stuck in a status quo bias right they think that any kind of radical change is going to be worse for them you know but in fact if people realized freedom as a need and applied it consistently they would look back at this time and going like what did we why did we put up with that you know what look what we've been missing out on and i think that's the level of sort of integration and reflection that most of humanity is yet to sort of attain yeah uh, there's a lot of status quo bias and likely fear of of that change even if it is greener pastures but uh yeah there's a lot of habits and feedback loops and traditions that things just keep on perpetuating i mean there's there's certainly some glimmers of optimism and some disruptions and there's people who are choosing to in, enhance their consciousness in order to disrupt those cycles and that's really the key but yeah these in particular the schooling environment is is conditioning and, and not encouraging consciousness and then yeah and just to unpack the government concept what really helps me is to remind myself that government is an abstraction right it's not a physical it doesn't exist in physical reality like a forest is an abstraction and the trees exist so government is simply a name for a collection of individual human beings who all put put on their pants in the morning like everybody else and who all had their own childhood experiences and they're all had most likely all went to public school and all that but yeah. they're 
there's just perpetuating these systems. And so I think oftentimes in our culture, we assume like there's just this entity of the government that has things under control, but it's really just individuals waking up in the morning and then people having these beliefs about what those individuals ought to be doing. And then those, those individuals taking on these roles, right. Of being the authority and things just keep on keeping on. Right. Yeah. That's the nature of those systems. You know, what does it mean to be in a system? And there's not much talk of that. There's, there's talk of like rules. What are the rules? What are the punishments? If you break the rules, and last night I was talking to an attorney at this little get-together that we have here in Saipan. And um, it's a useful venue to, to sort of change the conversation to something that opens up more understanding of things. But he was talking about the guidelines, the federal guidelines on the, on the like Supreme Court level and how, you know, these are seen as this like sacrosanct set of rules that you're supposed to follow. And I asked him, you know, when you went to law school, did they ever talk about the difference between positive rights and negative rights? And of course not. Or even natural law principles. Of course not. You know, that would disrupt the whole nature of the legal system, wouldn't it? If people started to learn about more first principles, rather than, you know, swimming in midstream with all these legal constructs. Yeah, it's like if the medical system, if the medical system started t teaching nutrition, that would disrupt the entire medical system. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the nutritional guidelines are another atrocity. You know, so you get to a sy system where physicians are reluctant to tell their, their patients what would most benefit them, which is to cut the garbage out of their diet all the empty carbs and the vegetable oils and all that stuff so they don't get heart disease and cancer or less prone to it at least uh, but that's not part of the nutrition guidelines and so they're liable if they say things that are outside that box and so just put this person on some statin drugs lower that cholesterol even though that you know cholesterol heart health hypothesis has been pretty firmly debunked even Harvard came out and said, yeah, there's really not much evidence to show that saturated fat causes heart disease. Sorry, guys. I don't think they said sorry, though. Right. Well, fortunately, there is optimism with podcasts like yours and, and many other podcasts talking about health and fitness and the truth about that. And people are catching on to some degree. But I'm curious more yeah. about the... The, the domination systems and um, and the, the religion one, because you mentioned, you know, definitely schooling and government are going to be domination, mm -hmm. and then parenting and religion, maybe. And I know that you identify as atheist, and then, but you're also sort of tapped into the sort of ineffable beauty of nature. And like what George Carlin would say, he, he, worships the sun because he can at least see the sun yeah it helps with the credibility a little bit you know <laughs> so i'm like uh i know you've talked about like this idea of just like the ineffable wonder of the planet and the sort of love source that connects living creatures and there's something that is 
someone might call spiritual or something intangible there. Mm-hmm. So how do you sort of like what's your what are your thoughts on religion as is there any potential concepts to abstract um, from that and to impart to children in a healthy way? Mm. Yeah, well, I kind of agree with Ayn Rand who said that religion is a primitive form of philosophy. So it's the first attempts for humans to try to grasp the nature of the world, the nature of nature. You know, and unfortunately, there are a lot of moralistic prescriptions in that process, or can be at least, depending on the religion. So it varies. And yet, if you look at Buddhism, trying to grasp the nature of consciousness and the processes of living with this consciousness and all the different facets of it, um, obviously they've encountered a lot of really clear identifications about things. And I think that can be helpful, right? Um, In a sense, talking about how wondrous the world is, is is kind of a psychedelic experience. You know, it's it's mind-expanding. And if you look at how children interact with new things that they encounter in the world, they're like, wow, look at that. They get really excited by even the small things that seem to be not alive in adults anymore because it's routine. They've been there, done that. Nothing to get excited about. But yet, the more we acquire knowledge about what the world is like, you know, scientifically, all that scientific knowledge is really helpful in amplifying the excitement because you realize that there's way more questions than there are answers. And yet there's so much we have learned about the world. I mean, just the simple reflection that we're on a planet, we're on a planet flying through a solar system, which is flying through a galaxy on a spiral arm about two-thirds out from the center of our galaxy. It's just, and that's just one of many, many billions of galaxies, right? And there's potentially millions of Earth-like planets, maybe even billions. I don't know what the estimate is these days, but um, I I don't remember it at least. They do have estimates. But um, that's a big deal to reflect on too. Some people can see that as kind of overwhelming though, you know, like to try to grasp the incomprehensible nature of the vastness of the universe. But I think it just leads to more wonder. Yeah, that's, and that's, would you say that's a need, like to have wonder? I would think so. Curiosity. Well, let's go to the needs list, nonviolent communication. They've got a pretty comprehensive list. I mean, it's definitely, I know curiosity is a feeling. I don't know if he lists it as, as a need. Mm-hmm. But I mean, there's definitely a need for growth. There's a need for beauty. So, you know, the, the, the awe of the, the universe is a need for beauty. Mm-hmm. I'm seeing presence, peace, uh, peace and beauty. Beauty is somewhat related to wonder. Inspiration. Mm-hmm. Inspiration. That's related to wonder. Spontaneity, awareness, celebration of life. Celebration of life. That would, might, might be the most direct way to talk about the need for wonder, huh? Yeah, Cre- so... Creativity. Growth. Uh-huh. 
learning, you know, those are all needs related to this, right? Stimulation. Understanding. With religion, there's, they're tapping into that in, to some degree. Just to so some this, degree. This, it's, yeah, it's, like there's, that's, what, that's what they're striving for, I think. But then like the need for clarity and understanding might not be met, right? Typically not. No, because in order for that, and even in the realm of science, they kind of go off the rails because they engage in the skeptical thinking about everything rather than having a degree of certainty, that certainty actually is possible. Because if it weren't, we couldn't differentiate between being uncertain and certain. Like the words wouldn't make any sense. You know, it's like saying there are, there are no absolutes. Well, is that an absolute statement? Mm -hmm. You know? So there's a lot of self-contradictory stuff. The, the fallacy of stolen concept, as Rand would say. You're stealing the concepts of... A, of absolutism in order to de deny it or certainty in order to deny it or um you know truth there's no such thing as truth we can't know an objective truth well is that objectively true that's probably one of the biggest the biggest epistemological problems that we have in our culture and it 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 blends into the scientific perspective too because they think that all things all truths are provisional that can be overturned not realizing there's a, there's a whole foundation of facts that we rely on to build from, you know, that if they weren't there, then we'd live in, you know, this chaotic place where things could transform from one thing to the next and there's no identity that's um, discernible, you know. So if we look at an objective view of metaphysics and epistemology, we look at, well, there's the law of identity and the law of causality and law of non-contradiction. This goes back to Aristotle. You know, somehow he was able to figure this out 2,300 years ago. Pretty amazing. And if we understand those laws, we can engage in a process of understanding the scientific nature of things, like using science to figure out causal relationships based on the identity and causality of those particular entities or existence. So this is a degree of clarity that most religions don't have. I would say that there is a degree of clarity in, in Buddhism when they talk about consciousness and some of the phenomenology that's happening. And yet there is among Asian philosophies, as well as, you know, the uh, monotheistic religion, religions, there's this love-hate relationship with the self and oftentimes it's like just an apathetic relationship in Asian philosophy. Like we just want to see the self as this monkey mind, be aware of it, but don't identify with it. Um, maybe try to get rid of all your desires because desires are the cause of suffering, you know? So there's a lot of confusion in that realm. And of course in Christianity and Judaism and Islam, there's explicit self-sacrifice being offered as the primary ethic. Right, so Jesus is the epitome of a self-sacrificial ethic, and this is not helpful for helpful for getting needs met, at least on a consistent basis, and being able to integrate things as a thinking, feeling being. 
you know, in a clear way, because you end up with all kinds of moral issues that crop up. You know, the blaming, the shaming, the punishment. I mean, that's kind of built into the, the monotheistic paradigm, isn't it? Yeah, and it's pretty frequent that, you know, those who are subscribing to monotheism, they grew up that way. How many people are, I guess, I'm sure it's happened, but growing up with complete freedom and autonomy to think, and they're, they're using their mind to understand epistemology and make sense, and no one is telling them what to believe, and then deciding later in life to, to believe in a deity. Um, I'm not seeing that, you know, it's the, the religions get them while they're young. Um, For sure. Yeah. And yet there's yeah, like I mean, pantheism. So pantheism comes close to that level of integration, right? Um, I guess it could be seen in a metaphorical way, right? Because God is everywhere. And by God, you know, it's synonymous with nature, with the cosmos, not necessarily an, an omniscient, omnipotent, infallible consciousness. Yeah, somewhere. that's the key distinction. Like, what? Where I, that's where I'm still like curious and exploring is like, what is what is this nature of nature, this wonder where we've been touching on, and like, what's the cause of all that? Like, that's you know the deepest question of all, perhaps. Indeed, um, yeah, that's where metaphysics and physics kind of converge, right? So, what do we know about atomic? On the things on the atomic level and subatomic particles, and what what underlies that? What about these energy fields? You know, there's all kinds of theories in physics about this stuff, from string theory, quantum physics stuff, right? But do those physicists have like a real grounding in an objective metaphysics? Oftentimes not. So they end up forwarding contradictory notions, like a particle can be in one place and another place at the same time. Well, I mean, epistemologically, and, you know, the epistemology part of this is about using our reasoning ability, identifying and integrating um, units in reality and into concepts based on specific defini definitions, and then logically discerning them so that we don't engage in contradiction. Because Aristotle said, a thing cannot be itself and not itself at the same time in the same respect. And that's one thing that a lot of the theorizing in physics doesn't really take into account. So it doesn't bring clarity to conceptual minds. Um, it may have utility in experiments and stuff with the, the formulas, equations they use to predict probability and so forth. But there's not really a, a clear perspective on what's going on underlying the experiments, you know the identity and causality of what's what's happening. So we've yet to figure that stuff out, I think. You know? And maybe we maybe it it's beyond our capacity to figure out as conceptual beings. We we might need more levels of conceptualization, more intense processing of things. So maybe a you know, an advanced artificial general intelligence could figure this out. Just like it will probably be able to figure out the the processes that lead to aging of biological systems and be able to correct those in ways that humans presently can't. But I think at some point in the future we might. So be able to 
slow down and then stop the aging process and even reverse it without damaging the whole system. My friend John Smart used to say that he dropped, I think he dropped out of medical school because he's like, they're not really ready for the thoughts that I have yet. <laughs> yeah. You know, very regimented, lack of empathy systems. Um, but he thought that our biological systems have too much legacy code, essentially. So if you try to change anything drastically, it really messes up the system. So I think he's more on board with trying to um, take a snapshot of the entirety of the brain like through some sort of plastinization process. So if you freeze frame all of your neural circuits and all the neur neurotransmitters and instantiate that into some other substrate, maybe you won't lose your consciousness. But uh, I think you probably would. So like we're locked into this wetware, this neural system that we have, and I'm not sure if there's any way that we're going to be able to get into a different substrate, despite what Ray Kurzweil thinks. That we're going to upload so, ourselves to the, 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 the giant internet, right? And somehow keep our identity in that process when we're digitized. You could say the parts of our mind are digitized already, right? You know, we have notes on our phone and a whole bunch yeah. of things we've said in apps, and these are like fragments of our consciousness in a different form. But the whole process of consciousness, actually, I don't know if that could be something that could arise in a different substrate. It's it's still an open question. So circling back to the domination systems, you know, top-down parenting, schooling, religion, and government, let's now tie that to sort of this NBC frame. And we, mm -hmm. we touched on, on nonviolent communication and the needs inventory. So, so I want to dissect that and the NVC perspective as well as the internal family systems therapy perspective as sort of like these root psychological processes, um, these lack, the lack of integration basically of the self and seeing the needs behind the parts of self and that as a sort of reason we have these domination systems at, at the very root. Um, and that's what I've, like I said at the beginning, I really appreciate about your, your lens is like seeing the compassionate, the compassionate lens and seeing that even, even the most destructive actions that any human is bringing, um, that person is, is trying, this is what NBC is so beautiful uh, about shining light on no matter what a human is doing even if it's the most violent action or it's harmful or a parent hurting a child or a government official hurting somebody else you know all these actions are, are tragically they're expressions of, of unmet needs they're people trying to get needs met but their strategies end up actually sacrificing needs but when we mm -hmm. can see that lens that every single action is in search of a human need, it can be really informing, and we, we get out of this blame and shame paradigm, right? Yeah, it can kind of open up a door or a window to that person correcting, self-correcting, you know? Because if people are shamed and blamed and told that they're bad or wrong through their behaviors, um, 
it kind of puts up defenses, doesn't it? Like these protector parts come to the fore because they don't want to experience, re-experience the pain, right? That happened early on when they were traumatized. So people form walls instead of windows. I think Rosenberg has a nice song about that. Words can be walls or they can be windows. Um, so IFS, you know, breaking down the human consciousness into different parts, I think is really helpful to understand that we're a multiplicity of, of neural processes happening and we may or may not identify with some of them, you know, we may not even understand why they're happening. Most of what's going on in our consciousness is happening without a whole lot of awareness, you know, and that's kind of what Buddhism tries to cultivate a sense of awareness of, of being an observer of what's going on in your mind rather than just, you know, being swept up in it or being oblivious to it. So I like the, the pathways to liberation self-assessment matrix that NBC trainers did. Jim and Joy Mansky and Jacob Gutwals and Jack Lehman. They spent, I think, a few years putting this together. It consists of all the different facets of consciousness, right? From presence, observing, needs consciousness, empathy, mourning, dissolving enemy images, honest self-expression, openness to feedback, responding to others' reactivity. There's a whole bunch of them, right? These are the different things that we experience in ourselves. And then we have different levels of understanding and skills about dealing with these things. So we go from unconsciously incompetent, where we have no knowledge of the skill, essentially unskilled, to awakening, where we become aware of the skill, or consciously incompetent. This is kind of how I was when I started learning nonviolent communication. And to some extent, still am in some respects, you know, with our culture that, again, is oriented towards moralistic judgment and the four Ds of life alienating communication, diagnosing, you know, labeling and so forth, deserve-oriented thinking, demands, you know, instead of requests, and then denying responsibility. Like we've got whole systems and most people are set up you know, catering to that stuff. But when we come, become consciously incompetent, at least we now have a foothold by which to ascertain a different way of being and doing. So they say becoming aware of the difference between being alert to what is actually happening and being lost in thought. And then the next step is capable, capable able to use the skill with effort, consciously competent. So this is what the baby giraffe ears, right? Have you talked about giraffe ears on the show? No, not specifically. Okay. So this is like giraffe has the, the biggest heart of any land animal. That's why I think Rosenberg chose it as the uh, sort of mascot for NBC consciousness. So when we have giraffe ears on, then we can really hear feelings and needs and digest the thorns of moralistic judgment and make clear observations without any moralistic judgment. So baby giraffe ears, that means we're consciously competent. So we're able to witness thoughts and feelings and able to respond rather than to react. Able to bring oneself back to alertness when aware of having been lost in thought. And that's kind of what meditation practice 
is oriented towards, you know. And the the goal, the ideal is being integrated, which means naturally using the skill with ease and flow, being unconsciously competent. So now it's been integrated, it's been automatized in a sense in consciousness. So we have a relaxed alertness to what is happening in each moment with a deep sense of purpose and choice. Deep sense of purpose and choice. Openness to what is with resourcefulness, interdependence, not just independence, but interdependence, realizing that we're social creatures and we have this interpersonal space that we can really nourish and cultivate and reflect with. And then a perspective of past and future. So having that autobiographical narrative of what's going on in the past, those past moments, and then those potential future moments without you know, collapsing into the, the, the worry about the future and the guilt about the past. Right, so you see how that perspective ties to the, the IFS perspective of self-leadership. Just being in your truest self, your, your core self, your sage self, as Brennan would call it, um, or being that kind of highest silent witness, you know, as the Buddhist perspective, perspective might offer, really being grounded in, in authenticity and integration and kind of having that alertness, that heightened awareness. And then you can observe some, sort of the different parts of the sub-personalities that might be popping up in, in sort of this IFS framework of the protector parts or managers or firefighters. And these parts tend to try to help us, as you alluded to, sort of stop the, the feelings that... The, these exiled parts, these deepest child, childhood wounded parts, basically, um, felt, right? Whether that's shame or fear or something similar, the protector parts are coming in because they're trying to help the body not feel those uncomfortable feelings again. So they bring up these walls and these guards to protect the exiled parts because these, these exiled parts are not integrated, they're not healed. So whatever childhood experience happened, the protector part was formed in order to, as, as a mechanism to help the child survive. Whether that's, if, if the child real, realized early on in school that if he actually spoke his opinion, that the teacher would ostracize him or the other kids would ostracize him. And that would that feels then the feelings of shame come up. So after that experience, the protector part comes is formed in order to make sure those just uncomfortable, terrible feelings don't come back. So but then the true self is not really in action because this wall has come up. So when you're really in integration, you are you've sort of dissolved the protector parts and you've integrated with the deepest exiled parts. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I think that pretty much explains the model. It is a model, right? Um, just like any psychological model, it can be missing other aspects, right? 
and it be it can be incom incomplete or it can be you know engaged in in metaphor i think there there are versions of ifs that um kind of go off the scientific rails and start talking about these parts as if they have their own personalities, you know, and call them names, um, like actual human names. Like this is Mary and that's Fred and this is John over here and this is this part. And I think that maybe adds more complexity and confusion than what's necessary in addition to not being exactly very empirical about it. I think that most um, psychologists would roll their eyes at, at those kinds of portrayals because they would say, well, let's put this to the test. Let's, let's put this in studies the way that cognitive behavioral therapy has been put into studies and seen you know, to be efficacious as you're talking about these irrational premises or beliefs and then you're disputing them and replacing them with something that's actually um, suitable to what's, what's um, helpful for a person. And, and reasonable rather than you know magnifying things or catastrophizing or minimizing things all these biases that our consciousness is prone to but i would say yeah the protector parts have survival value like they're the, the mechanisms of defense if you will right and so what would it be like if we didn't have those aspects of consciousness to come to the fore in traumatizing situations so imagine like you ever, you ever thought about this? Like maybe in a world that actually has healed its trauma, what do you think would be the roles of the protector parts then? Or would there even be roles for them? Man. Yeah, there, there would be so much openness and integration that you really wouldn't have them in interpersonal relationships, I think. If in a truly fully healed world, I don't, I don't, yeah, I don't know. Be, there'd be trust. I don't know so if much we would have trust. I don't know if we would have these protectors or if we would have inner critics. I think these are just so. No, I don't think us. we would have the inner critic at all. The inner yeah. critic is basically an internalized version of the blaming and shaming that we got from parents and caregivers, essentially. So, I think maybe in IFS there's a, a reluctance to really. Um, focus on that which I think is helpful because it's like you're empowering that person to take responsibility for what's happening inside their own mind not necessarily to offload it to say oh it's it's the fault of my family system uh, outside yeah. of me it's actually I've internalized this family system and maybe there's just not enough focus on the internalization of that so they're treating a family system internally as something of its own design, in a sense. Um, it's like the biopsychosocial way of trying to figure out why we have these experiences that we do. You know, I think there's a lot of reciprocal causation that's happening. And as Brandon has pointed out in the self-esteem ideas, um, we're still faced with our fallibility and our worth, right, and our efficacy, the efficacy of our minds because we interface with reality. And we can make obvious mistakes, right? But do we diminish ourselves, our capacity to um, learn from those mistakes and do things differently that benefits us and other people more, you know? So, 
he seemed to think that we're always going to be struggling with this sort of profound assessment of ourselves in terms of self-esteem. So we need to really attune to the six pillars, practice living consciously and accepting ourselves and asserting ourselves, saying yes when we want to say yes and no when we want to say no, um, living with integrity, sense of personal integrity, aligning with our values, <clears throat> being congruent with our, our beliefs and our behaviors, what we say and what we do, and taking responsibility for ourselves. I think that's a big one to cultivate in a culture that's filled with punishment paradigms, you know, or punishment, rewards and punishments, basically extrinsic motivators. It makes it more difficult to practice self-responsibility in that matrix. And then living purposefully, which is aligned with those values once again. Um, so maybe that's going to be in the background, but I think if we live in a healed culture, there's going to be such an orientation, like you say, to openness, to curiosity, to openness, to acceptance, and to love that the whole punishment paradigm will be gone. The shaming and blaming paradigm will be recognized for what it is and healed. Right? So we're tuned to what's alive in self, alive in others in a win-win fashion. And I think that makes that'll make all the difference. Um, and the cool thing is that we can practice this in our own relationships presently. Don't have to wait for the culture to change in order to do this, you know. And I think yeah, you know a lot of a lot of people in the libertarian world, right? They they want to see that free world, and they're not going to be happy, damn it, until it happens. <laughs> so that's really selling our own happiness short, isn't it? But I can see their point. I mean, you don't want to get apathetic about these things. You want to be genuinely outraged at injustices and systems of disrespect that are built in, baked into our systems or our, our culture. And yet you want to be able to nourish yourself and rejoice in the amazing aspects of life and the wonders of the planet at the same time. Because I think like in the Buddhist perspective, once again, there's almost like a surrender to the status quo, right? Like there's not a lot of people advocating a stateless society in the Buddhist world. Like a lot of the yeah. people I've met have been more of the, the sort of leftist variety, like progressives. And this kind of takes us into the back to the integral theory. So this would be the green stage of consciousness and organization, very progressive, postmodernist thinking, equality, um, a lot of the, the the left values of, of liberation, in a sense, and mutual respect. It's just that the mod, the model of organization for it is is like an amber stage government. You don't see many people on the left advocating for a stateless society. So they haven't really transcended the amber stage, which is kind of a, still a component of green. And as Ken Wilber points out, this postmodernist uh, perspective is inherently contradictory. It so much wants equality that it's willing to force it on people and then at the same time say there's no such thing as absolute truth or certainty. Mm -hmm. So they're not yeah. realizing the contradictions and you know the epistemology that's kind of corrupted that whole model. So what we want to do is transcend the green, include the components of equality and understanding and all the things that um, people on the left or subscribe to those ideas on, on the left value and then 
transcend it, include those things and transcend them to a teal model, which operates on the basis of self-management, which accords with self-ownership, right, in the realm of politics, and holism or wholeness, where you're living as a whole person with feelings and thoughts and beliefs that you can share with people that you're doing tasks with, working with, you know, rather than just bringing a part of you to work and to do those particular required tasks and never really talking about all the things that matter to you and matter the people that you're working with. And then the purpose, the evolutionary purpose of the organization, like what is, what is the, this whole process driving towards? What is it seeking out? What is it trying to fulfill? And how can we collaborate, not just compete or not, not to compete, but collaborate with other people with the same purpose? Whether they're in other companies or other worlds, you know, other parts of the world. So that teal stage is, it fits really well with voluntarism. Like Lulu, the, the author of Reinventing Organizations, says, I want to bring, see the best of the free market brought into organizations. So it's win-win. Yeah, so you see all these levels interrelate with the self-connection and self-esteem and then interpersonal relationships and openness and wholeness. And we'd like, the holy grail would be to build that from the inside out and then create an entire world of openness, honesty, and clarity, and then bringing that into into biz, the business world, you know, rather than some of these structures of, of hierarchy. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, the IFS... NVC framework can really assist us in in operating within our sphere of control to not wait for things to just change in the world by themselves, but saying, what can I do with my own life to connect to myself and start to unpeel some of these layers and get curious about my own inner critics or protector parts. And that's this fusion of NVC with IFS is really valuable in that way because I think often we especially something like the inner critic which is a a term that's more widely known and there's sort of this attachment of let's conquer the inner critic or let's push away the inner critic and the the inner critic is somehow a problem even the word critic I hear people talk about smashing thoughts yeah yeah, and it's like even the word critic has this connotation of, of bad, right? Or even yelling, stop. I've heard some therapists talk about that. You just tell them to stop. Stop it. I'm in control now. Right. Right. So it's, just mo- it's using the same kind of tactics of, of uh, domination within the own psyche. Mm-hmm. What we really need. Yeah, fear and distrust. Yeah. We need we need that acceptance of of that part and that and that gratitude as well because remember that these parts were formed because of the childhood trauma because of these adverse mm-hmm. experiences when we didn't have our will and autonomy respected and we decided to conform and sacrifice our authenticity and we would create these parts as a child because we're in the very powerless situation as a child and so we can actually cultivate gratitude for the protectors and the inner critics. Because they were formed to help us navigate a powerless situation, essentially. 
Mm-hmm. It's the way of so, a consciousness trying to cope with overwhelming challenges, right? Very hurtful challenges, even. And I think it's important in the integration aspect to realize that that's the same thing that happened to our parents. Yeah. But they didn't. They didn't really come to terms with that. So then we experienced it. You know. So it's about like Peter Gerlach, which I've talked to with Brett about. Um, has this whole website about IFS perspectives, and he's the one that kind of takes it to an extreme as far as the multiplicity of parts. But I really like his perspective on breaking the cycle, you know, putting yourself in a pro-recovery environment Mm -hmm. so that it makes it much easier to alter these cycles of the past and to raise the level of awareness about what's going on. You know, the the eight C's that... um, Schwartz mentions about IFS of a self-leadership consciousness, calmness, curiosity, clarity, compassion, confidence, creativity, courage, and connectedness. And Kevin and I did a series on Healthy Mind Body about the different facets of the inner critics and I wrote, as we attune to our inner processes, we can manifest more of who we really are, the true and loving essence of ourselves. And so if we look at the psychedelic perspective, and I want to actually talk about how your trip went, by the way. Um, Yeah. We get connected to love and compassion. That's where our brains want to orient to. But when it's disrupted in a traumatic situation, we lose that connection, somewhat at least. And we indulge in self-distrust and it feeds into fears and then um, self-effacing beliefs or just you know irrational beliefs about self and others in the world to try to cope with a situation that was really overwhelming. Yeah. And, uh, when you have that lens of compassion and appreciation... You can get curious about what are the needs, right, behind an inner critic or a protector part. Mm-hmm. And rather than shunning that part, like that's such a key element here. Because often this process is difficult, A, because we're, we're growing up in this culture, we're navigating this culture, and it's going to be a, a long, basically lifelong experience to, to transcend these memes and rewire the brain. And so we want to have a sense of patience in, in our own transformation and, and self empathy for the mistakes we're going to make along the way. So if we're taking the, an NBC self-compassionate framework of seeing these inner critics, not as something that we need to get rid of because they're bad, but something that we can observe first and then become curious about why they're there. Ask them to speak to us about what their concern is. And say, well, what is it that you're, what need are you trying to get met? You know, maybe it's with an inner critic, it's a need for efficiency. When that critic says, you need to work harder or you need to get more things done today. And it's mm-hmm. kind of this harsh voice that that is unsettling and, 
But if we want to start healing that and integrating, we can say, huh, so I, like, tell me about what you're, you're trying to get, what needs you're trying to help me out with. And it's like, oh, I want you to be efficient because I want you to grow and I want you to flourish. I want you to earn more income so that you can, you know, experience more contentment and ease and comfort uh, and travel. Like there's all these like calculations <laughs> going on in the subconscious about trying to get needs met so that we can flourish. Yeah. It's all about So if we can role right? play for a little bit and I say, sure. oh, those sound like wonderful things. It sounds like you don't trust me to accomplish that on my own. No, I don't trust you because you're always just going back to scrolling your phone when you uh-huh. want to show up. So you notice, you notice when your need for trust isn't met in, in these desires that you want me to achieve. Yeah, I definitely don't trust you. So if I, if I shout at you enough, then I, that tends to work. So I keep doing that. Huh. Where did you learn that? Yeah, well, definitely heard a lot of shouting growing up. So, and uh-huh. different coaches I had as well, and parents, teachers, and that that set a, that kind of lit a fire under my butt. So I eventually what would it be got like you. Done. What would it be like for you to question that strategy? Huh. How would that sit with you? I guess that could be something to entertain. It might be kind but of scary, still, huh? I'm still yeah. I'm feeling a little control. bit of fear. I'm feeling a little bit of fear. Yeah, about letting go because um, I'm concerned that we're going to just end up not getting anything done. Gets back to that trust thing, huh? Getting your need for trust met in the human psyche. Yeah, We're used to a culture where that is sacrificed. I mean, we live with institutions that are based on it, that are in broad daylight. And how many intellectuals pointed out? Yeah. People that are dealing with ideas on a daily basis like one of your questions about why don't people talk about this? The coercion that's built into these systems of distrust, right? Sacrificing our need for trust that reflect the the upbringing, right? Which, you know, the lion's share of adults don't radically unschool their kids. So... There's all kinds of facets of distrust going on that are being integrated. The messages are definitely being sent. It's there right in the culture, just left and right. And even the most, as you've mentioned, like most attuned psychologists, even Dan Siegel, Jordan Peterson, they're not talking about volunteerism and really the nature of taxation as a domination system that connects to to, uh, domination parenting. I mean... Peterson's chapter in his book on parenting was really upsetting. You know, I, I don't well, know if you read it that. was it was indicative of what he experienced as a child. So he's just yeah. running on that that energy, those unchecked premises. And you know, it's like an amber, uh, orange stage thinking too. Orange, by the way, is um, kind of rational, achievement oriented, merit based yet still hierarchical, command and control top-down, which draws from the amber preceding it, which is, you know, all the governmental systems, the schooling systems, the police systems, they're all based on that top-down command and control. And embedded in that is distrust. Because if you can trust individuals and trust the facets of your mind, you don't need to do that control stuff. You never really need to do it anyway. 
it, it's a it's a fiction and it's a trick on the self and a trick on others to play for people to experience less of themselves essentially just follow orders just do your job not to manifest more purpose in life based on wholeness and your capacity to self-manage which is based on trust you know the people in the teal organizations that lulu uh, profiles they decide what they're going to get paid imagine that yeah you know it's collaborative talk as team members about how we're going to allocate funds and and all that but um yeah the sensing and responding is left to individuals not to some authority figure that's perceived Yeah, so it's it's pretty. It's the uh, the water in which we swim is all all these paradigms of of coercion, and so. But it's really, I think that role play we just did is is illuminating. We 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 saw that it was about trust, right? And fear and trust. It always comes back to fear and trust. It seems fear, trust, mm-hmm. and shame. Um, but so, so we see how much power we have as individuals to do an introspective process and you could have that role play with yourself just sit down on the couch for 15 minutes and get you know get into a space a space of of heightened awareness and 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 get in touch with those parts that are having those concerns those inner critics that are having those concerns and if you can self-therapeutically have a a conversation and you can begin to build self-trust as you finally like allow that inner critic to really be heard and express the needs he's trying to get met or she's trying to get met, if we're going to personify it, uh, then that can begin to create self-integration. And this is literally the seed of how we could potentially pioneer, cultivate an open, free, healthy, flourishing society at large. But it's like mm-hmm. this work, if you don't do this work, you don't engage in these practices, then we're not going to really get anywhere. I mean, you can engage with these practices with a, a close friend or a therapist, but it's, it's often an inner dialogue that, that can be done. And that's, that's like why this podcast is called Exponentially Empowered, where we, if we want to create a, a healthy, healed world, we don't need to wait for other people. Mm-hmm. Ideally, we want that double exponential growth curve, <laughs> so everyone yeah. is working on it, and then the system changes, and yet we can't change the world um, with a snap of our fingers or just by talking about these things. It's it's a process. It happens over time. It takes time to integrate, and I don't think we want a world in which people treat voluntarism as a floating abstraction, you know, divorced from their own inner healing but rather being a manifestation of that healing. So that kind of aligns with the law of causality, right? We can jump over, as conceptual beings, we can, you know, jump across hyperspace in the conceptual world and grab onto an idea that is pristine and logical. And yet if it's disconnected from, you know, our world personally and the traumas that we experienced and what needs to be healed it can kind of lose its value or its luster. But imagine a world in which people are integrated from the bottom up. 
Yeah, man, it could be so. It would be a beautiful world. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. So we're I all inspiring to, touch... to see. Yeah, like I was and reminded hopefully... of the 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 series that I did about restorative justice. I think Brett was on that yeah. show actually, uh, a few episodes, and we talked about the Orang Asili, this one tribe that Rosenberg encountered somewhere out here in the South Pacific, I think. Um, maybe some part of Indonesia, but um, or Papua New Guinea or something. But they're, you know, they were a tribal uh, society, uh, basically. So if you look on the color spectrum, we've talked about teal, which is the, the one that's transcended a lot of these things. Um, and then underneath that is green and then orange and amber and then red, like red and tooth and claw. And then there's magenta and infrared. It's like more primordial stuff. But tribal societies were basically, you know, a blend of infrared, magenta, and red a lot of the times. And yet in this one tribe, and may, maybe in other tribes as well, but when someone did something that the people in the tribe didn't like, instead of shaming and blaming and punishing, they would gather in a circle around that person, and each one in the circle would face that person and tell them how they've enriched their life, what they really, really valued about them in their connection with them. And after the person experienced that from everyone in the tribe, they had, had reconnected with themselves and with the tribe. Yeah, it's so beautiful. It's like... <clears throat> Just people's needs for to be seen get met and for appreciation and belonging. And then from mm-hmm. there, there can be an organic sense of restoration and, and often perhaps re- regret and remorse over a certain action that individual did. But that yeah. person is now motivated and inspired to do that because and intrinsically motivated because they've been given these gifts of, of love and connection and visibility. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's so tragic how we just have, have these punishment paradigms in the so-called justice system and all this mass incarceration, not even yeah. just for like, not even just for nonviolent crimes, which is atrocious, but any crime, any, yeah, any crime. transgression that harmed people. And I think the, the message that was sent by all these tribal members to the person is that we trust you. We trust your self-leadership. And it seems you've lost your way. We'll help you regain that. Yeah, it's it's the power of empathy. And, and it's not this guilt kind of paradigm, right? There's often this notion of I need to apologize and, and tell somebody that I I was wrong and I did a bad thing and I shouldn't have done that. Repent, ye sinner. Like, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, it would be funny so, if it weren't so tragic. Yeah. So in terms of our continued growth in, in starting with this self-compassion NVC IFS framework, and we've talked about like this fallibility we have as creatures and how this is a long process. And so I really want to highlight the, the pillar of self-esteem 
self-acceptance and how we can incorporate that in our journey so that we befriend ourselves and as we fall and, and have we strive for growth, we, we strive to become a truer, integrated version of ourselves, but then we might have a setback and then we have a protector part come up and then we, well, we shame ourselves or we judge ourselves and like how can we not judge ourselves for judging ourselves, right? How can we incorporate a sense of acceptance for what is and while we grow and strive for new horizons, how can we make that process an organic growth rather than a forced growth? Well, what comes to mind about the judgment thing is what Rosenberg mentioned about that, like making the distinction between value judgments and moralistic judgments. And that was kind of a sticking point for me when I first learned NBC. I'm like, wait, so you're saying that if someone butchers a child in cold blood, uh, I'm supposed to be okay with that. I'm not supposed to judge that, mm-hmm. you know? And I think that in, in the green stage of thinking and organization in our culture, there's, there's a lot of um, sort of reluctance to, to, to use judgment, even though they do. Like it's, it's kind of like um, it's a process that is filled with conflicting notions, you know, because what it boils down to is the fact that we cannot escape judgment. That is part of our minds to, to look at the facts of reality, discern things, see what's happening, and determine, is this for me or against me? As Brandon would, that's how Brandon framed it. Things that are for or against me, and then we have emotions based on that to give us um, feedback about, well, you know, is this conforming to my values or against them? You know? But NBC looks at it from the idea of needs-based judgment. That's the judgment we need to incorporate, you know, embody. Like what needs are getting met or not getting met. And that takes us out of that realm of the criticism, either inner critic or external critics, which is so common in social media, right? Yeah. So if we just focus on needs-based judgment as an inextricable part of who we are, then we can start building on that and reframing our typical inner conflicts based on that. So like we talked about with that role play, the the need for trust is like a giant red button glowing, you know? And that was something that was really alive in the parent that got internalized into that facet of self known or called the inner critic. You could even call it like the fearful part instead of an inner critic, because the inner critic comes with a little bit of a derogatory label, doesn't it? Yeah. So the fearful, fear, fearful part um, comes with a degree of empathy. Oh, you're feeling fearful. Let, let's really get into that. You know, where, where does that come from? And you can throw in some cognitive behavioral therapy to reassess the, the super rapid appraisals that are happening, those assumptions that, you know, give rise to the fear that you can't do it, you're not good enough. Um, Yeah, that you never were trusted, so how could you ever trust yourself? All those kinds of thoughts 
which can be hard to identify and hard to um, rechannel, you know, because we're trying to form new pathways in the brain. Yeah. Right? What's that, that one metaphor of like a, a toboggan trail or a sled trail in the snow? If you've gone sure. down the same ones over and over again, it's very hard to, to get out of that rut. You have to break new yeah, trails. These neurons are secured. Are you familiar with like myelination? Like the, the myelin substance wrapped around the synapses. When you when we secure um, a skill or a habit, each time you know. So there's, we we all have a lot of myelination around the synapse of, of how to tie our shoes. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's automatized, and so there's so much automa- um, automation with these cultural memes with just the very existence of all this inner chatter. Everybody has it. We think it's normal. It's just, again, the water in which, in in which we swim. And so raising consciousness and saying, I'm going to choose to create a new, new uh, sled marks in the snow. Mm -hmm. And that's going to be more difficult at first as you plant those grooves and create those new synapse connections, it's going to be hard. And so like the, the acceptance and appreciation can be really valuable. I know it's something that I struggle with. I struggle with accepting that I'm not fully actualized or as fast as I want to be. Or Is, is that true? Have you tried to dispute that thought? Because I don't think it's true. Well, like, I feel more self-expressive talking to you right now, whereas earlier today mm-hmm. I was talking to a group of cousins on a call, and they're not in the same mindset in this personal growth journey. So it was like, I definitely was able to be more authentic than I have been in the past with them. But, like, noticing my body, like, um, close up a little bit, not really feeling like mm-hmm. self-expressive and grounded, and so then mm-hmm. I felt after the call, I felt a little bit frustrated because I, I wasn't fully um, in, in, alive and engaged the way I would want to be. Right. And so mm-hmm. it's like that. You were kind of like maybe um, so maybe David Burns would look at this as like saying, oh, I see part of you is trying to accommodate their perspective. Like they are kind of closed off. So sure. you'll get kind of closed off. You want to kind of mirror that for them as a way to empathize in a sense in the interpersonal space. Yeah, that's spot on, I think. It's like trying to create that, like there's a group dynamic and you want to like go along to create a, a sense of cohesion and, and connection amongst the group. So then, yeah, you want to go out of your way even to people. not throw any, make sure no turds get thrown in the punch bowl. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because in our social world, there can be lots of those, right? People that perceive them as that, but um I was thinking of another sort of metaphor, like trying to build a boat while you're in this water that we're swimming in, right? Or build a submarine yeah. to be yeah. able to navigate through these rough waters. You kind of need to find an island, some dry land, sure. <laughs> by which to construct this thing, which which is kind of the metaphor of the pro-recovery environment, you know? Yeah. Like you're not going to get over a crack addiction by living in a crack house. Let's just say it's a very challenging way to do it. <laughs> Yeah. No, man, yeah, we're no. all in this together. 
I'll start first. No crack for me. Yeah, yeah. That's why I'm, I'm grateful to have connected to people like you and, and uh, other creating new friendships with people who are growth-minded and, and curious and um, exploring the inner realm. And in, in mm-hmm. the past couple of years, been able to create more of a, 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 mini, a mini tribe in that way. And so I feel I, I've de- like developed a little bit of that pro-recovery environment in my own sphere. Yeah. And I'm grateful for that. And then I feel like when I go out into, I leave that island and go into the, the, the water, then I'm, I have a little bit more uh, strength. I'm a little less mm-hmm. overwhelmed, but it's still feel more resourceful. Yeah, more resourceful because I like carry the connections I have with people, I carry with me in a sense. Mm-hmm. Um, like it's sort of like in your nervous system, the, the connections you have with people. But yeah, it's that's still, the, it's that's still the hard. We, the combination of me and we, we that Dan Siegel talks about. Oh, I don't know that. That's one. what he really wants to emphasize that. Right. So. I love that. And I think like at, at the foundation, we have this relationship with ourselves that we can draw from as far as resourcefulness goes, because we need to reparent ourselves given the culture that we grew up in. But if we can collaborate with like-minded folks that are on that journey together, um, then it sort of amplifies, you know, that's the exponential growth process. Yeah. Um, when you talked about self-actualization, I don't know if you're familiar with a new book by uh, Scott Barry Kaufman called Transcend. No. He's drawing on um, the theories of Abraham Maslow. And I think he's aware of NBC. I think he might have interviewed an NBC trainer. He's got the psychology podcast. So he's kind of tuned into the mainstream of university, university professors and therapists and so forth. But um, one of his handlers reached out to me to maybe come on Healthy Mind Fit Body podcast to talk about his book. So I think that would be really interesting. Um, but anyway, Transcend is about the self-actualization process. Because that's the top of the pyramid of of the Maslow's hierarchy of needs, but that's a misnomer because he actually never drew a pyramid. It was some other guy that was interpreting his ideas. And the needs in NBC basically are universal and they're distributed. They're not in a they're not in a top down hierarchy of sorts. So if we just look at meeting that need for self actualization, I would say as long as we're oriented towards awareness. And acceptance, like really attuning to the facts of what's going on in our minds and our bodies, we are actualizing our potential. It reminds me a bit of a, a book I recently read on Audible by Eckhart Tolle. You familiar with him? Yeah, I, I just read The Power of Now. I talked about it on a podcast. Oh, okay. So he's been on ago. Oprah, right? So he's tuned into the yeah. mainstream for sure. But um, yeah. the book that I read was i think came after the power of now but when was the power of now uh, published i want to say like 94 or something like that sometime 90s yeah so this one came after that Let's see if i can find it oh a new earth it's called yeah so it you know kind of re- recapitulates a lot of the things he was talking about but i you know despite some 
mistaken views on metaphysics and the idea, even epistemology, thinking that consciousness is out there somewhere and our brains are just like antennas that pick it up. So that, that this life that we have as a mortal being is just like one stepping stone into the other life that our consciousness will live beyond our the, the, the parish, when our mortal bodies uh, perish and decay. You know, so that's real spiritual bypass going on there. You know, not coming to terms with our mortality, which I think is one of the most profound things a person can do, to come to terms with your mortality in a non- sort of mystical, magical way of thinking about consciousness. And I think maybe Sam Harris is probably most attuned to that sort of understanding that, you know, yeah. the mind is what the brain is doing. Um, so there's a scientific understanding of causation there, and even reciprocal causation, because Dan Siegel has a book called Mind, and he looks at this interplay between what we're thinking, what we're talking about, as having these reverberating effects on our brain like, like we were talking about rechanneling things and we're doing this through conscious processing and even subconscious meditation stuff like we're reshaping our neural pathways based on that and yet neural pathways are responsible for us <laughs> doing the talking and the thinking and all that right so it's a lot of reciprocal causation going on but nonetheless totally has it I think a really valuable thing to say about this idea of actualization, what it means to be a a whole self in the world. And it basically distills down to that observational aspect of ourselves. To be an observer of reality, inner reality and outer reality. I think it was Carl Jung that talked about spirituality that way, to become more and more aware of our inner and outer worlds. And because that's like a, there's no final destination there. It's just a process. We have the capacity to tap in at any time. You know, it's not like, well, I've got to achieve all these goals and then I'll be actualized. No, yeah, the process exactly. of actualization is just attuning to this stuff that really matters. And being able to share it with others. You know, I guess like, in the situation with your cousins, right? Yeah. Like maybe bringing up... And my, and my brother, yeah. Yeah, some, some aspect of like maybe talking about wholeness. Do you guys feel like you're bringing your whole self to our conversations? I'm wondering if there's other aspects that you want to talk about. Yeah, it's like for me, there, I think there's a protector part that doesn't want me to say that kind of thing because <clears throat> that's like, oh, well, that uh, personal self-awareness topic is not of interest to everyone else so we're just if i say that if there's going to be critics uh, not critics crickets and there's going to be the we're going to lose the flow of the conversation because people don't really want to talk about that but we don't want to flow so into the inner world yeah so i guess there's like this fear of of ostracization from this protector part fear mm -hmm. of, of disconnection that i won't or i won't be included in the group if yeah i assert so myself needing, in this unique way you need appreciation and inclusion yeah and and then realizing that the need for support and empathy really isn't getting mad there so you know they say try to connect before you ever try to correct you know and empathize before you educate and yet you know we can 
encounter people that are just at a level of awareness that they're having a hard time seeing out of, you know, and they're maybe reluctant and fearful to see out of that level because it's like, that's the nature of protector parts. They want to do more of what worked in the past, which was to hunker down to internalize even the process. Like it was my fault. Um, and I don't trust you anymore. You know, like just internalize the, the critical voices and stuff to protect, um, that degree of vulnerability that was really overwhelmed and there was a lot of hurt attached to it. So maybe empathizing with some of the reticence about it, you know, and then realize too that other people are on their own paths and some people, um, no matter what you say or do, are not going to be, you know, desiring of that path. Right. But I can, I think the vision I have for myself is to be able to be free and authentic, authentic and self-expressive regardless of how someone else reacts. Mm-hmm. Like all of a sudden I'm thinking about John Galt from Atlas Shrugged right now where he's just like when they captured him and then he's just speaking, he's just speaking his truth while they're interrogating him kind of thing. Yeah. And Giving him shots. It was not in the shocks. It was before that, like when they, when they first captured him, they, they took him from his apartment and then they were like questioning him. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I just, the, his, that character, his, his sort of, he, he was at the self-actualized place, I think, where he was just going to speak truth no matter what, no matter what other people said back. Um, kind of like where the chips fall, let the yeah. chips fall where they may. Yeah, and another, actually another character that ins, in, inspires me is, I don't know if you ever saw Ron Swanson on Parks and Recreation. <laughs> um, I think, parts of it, yeah. Um, just like he's just sort of this like uh, really like meat-eating libertarian type, political progressive type, but he, he was just like, let's just do nothing as a government. Um, and so he was like completely on the opposite end in this, in their, in, in viewpoints, but like he never blended with her. Like he just said what he thought, no matter what, that's something that I aspire to do. Just continue just to like to become unconsciously competent at doing that. Right. Where mm-hmm. no matter what someone else says, or how they react, even if they're not on this journey, like how can I just be me? You know, I think that's, a, I think that's a good thing for anybody to aspire to. Yeah. Have you heard of the over Overton window? Uh, it sounds familiar, but it's not ringing a bell. Let me see if I can bring that up. There's a Wikipedia page about it. And it basically speaks to this reticence to say something radical. <laughs> yeah. You know, the Overton window is the range of policies politically acceptable to the mainstream population at a given time. Also, also known as the window of discourse. The term is named after Joseph Overton, who stated that an idea's political viability depends mainly on whether it falls within this range rather than on politicians' individual preferences. According to Overton, the window frames the range of policies that a, pol- a politician can recommend without appearing too extreme to gain or keep public office given the climate of public opinion at the time. So, 
yeah, there's this Overton window graph that they have at the bottom, pointing towards the bottom. It says less freedom, pointing towards the top. It's more freedom. And with the, the least freedom, you go from unthinkable to radical to acceptable to sensible to popular to policy. And that policy is the sweet spot, right? And then as you go up the freedom uh, continuum, you get into more popular and then sensible and acceptable and then radical and unthinkable as at the top. So no matter where the culture is in terms of what's acceptable, there's still these, these outliers of unthinkable and radical. So kind of what we've been talking about is at that unlo- uh, the outlier, right? The unthinkable and the radical for most people. And how to basically frame that message in a way that they can hear so it's not unthinkable and it's not radical. It doesn't seem that way. And that is like, that is the biggest challenge, isn't it? Especially with these freedom ideas. Because the freedom and responsibility, the flip side of that, right? So with freedom comes responsibility. That can um, trigger a lot of fear for people who haven't been trusted and haven't trusted others. And maybe are relying on a system of domination to live their lives and can't conceive. It's unthinkable to conceive of having that thing transform. Because then now it's the realm of uncertainty. What's going to happen to me? What's going to happen in my life if, if I lose these systems that I'm so attuned to and accustomed to? Right. Or what's so, going to happen to poor people? Well, it's fears. We need poor this. people. Yeah, what has happened to poor people? People with domination systems. I mean, yeah, they've suffered the immensely, right? So this, this you know, leftist liberal Marxist ploy that somehow the domination systems are helping the poor. Nothing could be further from the truth, because they're they're setting up that paradigm of like, oh, the greedy capitalists. They'll just keep all their money, and there'll be all these dystopian plots, like in the movies, right, where all the rich people live in the sky and they have yeah. all the power and then all the people on the planet are just living in squalor and all kinds of criminal activity and just really non-enriching places to be. So that's the caricature there, right? Yeah. Yeah, but in the psychological, there's there's that fear as well of, I mean, there's a need when people, when people make that argument, they're trying to, I think, get their needs met for consideration of other people and inclusion and community and harmony, but they don't have the the economical philosophical understanding of the cause and effect of why people are poor in the first place from the domination systems, not, not the business world it's from the coercion um yeah well let's see i kind of see it in a different way sometimes because it seems like a ploy because once you start asking questions about human flourishing and how people function in economies you you come come up against the coercive ideology and and that matters way more to them than the flourishing of people so to say that they really care about the poor and have empathy and so forth. If that were true, they wouldn't, you know, dig in their heels about the coercive process. 
Well, the but from NBC lens, they're that's the deeper motivation, but they're not backing it up with actions, right? So I would say that caring and love is an action. It's integrating the heart and the mind. So they're yes. they're not integrating the heart and the mind, but like the 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 need that they're attempting to get met is you know consideration for other people and and harmony amongst the the entire human species like they that would be well, I if, think if that were the case if that was a gen, genuine sort of desire to meet that need they would be advocating for a stateless society right so that's where the disconnect happens so it's one thing to talk about caring and concern and so forth and even to do volunteer work and all that stuff but systemically i think you're correct that there's not the integration with the the system involved that's overlaying all of these desires so I guess maybe the de- desires are being seen out of context. So that speaks to the lack of integration, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's the lack yeah. of clarity. Lack but of clarity, sure. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, the the Fox News folks talk about bleeding heart liberals, you know, and paving that path to hell with good intentions. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that's what I was saying at the beginning of the podcast is the the heart versus the head, right? So there's the Fox News types might often be on the, the head. They have the economic understanding, but not really uh, getting the need met for compassion for others. And just kind of like, just sort of naming, um, name calling those uh, Democrats, right? <laughs> Yeah, and they would say that, well, I'm showing the most compassion for others because I'm advocating for a free system by which people can get their needs met. However, you know, their Achilles heel is they're, they're not actually at, um, advocating a free system yeah. because they're still keeping the domination system of government intact. Why are they doing that? Why, why must there be an, a, a night watchman state in the Ron Paul-esque version of politics? Hmm, because we don't really trust people to provide for security and safety needs in a marketplace. Ayn Rand even said that there'd be gang warfare if we, you know, made the provision of, you know, safety and security a, a marketplace commodity, a service in the marketplace. Right, Somehow right. the objectivists do this magical thinking. And they say that, oh, no, securing people in the marketplace, that's government's job. Government is this sacrosanct institution that is a necessary good, as Yaron Brook says, the director of the Ayn Rand, Ayn Rand Institute. Because yeah. I asked him once in a Q&A, is government a necessary evil or a, necess- unne- a necessary or an unnecessary evil? And he thought for a second, he's like, government is a necessary good, which contradicted the whole talk that he just gave about the efficacy of free markets as opposed to government. But nonetheless, he's still wedded to that idea that we need some you know, I guess trustable father figure, mother figure, authoritative, authoritative, authoritarian, in fact, figure to keep all of these people under control and in a in a world that obeys the non-initiation of force principle, except for those in charge. They get a pass because um, objectivism wants to put that organization into a realm that's, again, mystical. Like, it's not, in fact, happening. 
like you say, government is just a concept. It's a, it's a fictitious sort of abstraction to try to understand what is going on here. Why are these people um, a cut above? Why do they have special rights? Well, maybe they're subjected to the same laws and so forth, but with their situation that they designed, they are not able to be disrupted because there's so much distrust in the process of getting our safety and security needs met in family systems. Like it's all just about reliving the trauma, isn't it? And yet even with yeah. trauma researchers that, that talk about getting those needs met and generating the, the, the four S's, as Dan Siegel says, being seen, being soothed, being safe and being secure. Even if you get all those, there's still like a disconnect in looking at the, the domination system of government and saying, wait a second, this is the manifestation of not being seen, not being soothed, not being safe and not being secure. Because it throws people in cages, punishes them, executes them on the street even, if you contradict the orders of a, a so-called authority figure. Irrespective of whether you're violating people's rights. Like there's no, like I asked that one lawyer last night, um, there's no distinction about individual rights, rights violations. You know, what constitutes a rights violation? Is a positive right the same as a negative right? Negative meaning um, the, the non-aggression principle. Like you have 100% control of your person and property and 0% control of other people and their property. That's uh, Mark Stevens' sort of framing of the non-aggression principle. Is that taught in law school? Hell no. Because that, you know, that pulls the thread out of the entire fabric of the state, doesn't it? I remember I asked the one cop in New Hampshire about this as we were doing this protest for Russell Canning, who was thrown in a cage for um, simply handing out flyers to the IRS people in Keene saying, um, you know, Hitler had an internal revenue service too, or revenue department. So I would really like you to get productive jobs instead. And they charge him with illegal distribution of a hand flyer, kind of trumped up charge. So they, they let him out. And as he's walking back, he just stopped in again and tried to do the same thing. And then they really threw him in a cage. So we were there at the, I think it was the county, county jail or prison. And, uh, I walked with this cop car. He has a window down. I said, you guys ever like make a distinction between those who violate individual rights and those who don't when you've, you know, tried to enforce these laws. And as I'm saying this, he's rolling up his window and saying, I don't have to listen to this shit. I talked about that on the podcast way back when wow, I think before yeah. the NBC discussion. Yeah. Do you remember that show? No, I, I don't think so. Okay. Well, I imagine it was before NBC. Yeah, yeah, it is. Um, so obviously that cop was feeling maybe, even though it wasn't necessarily, um, you know, accusing him of anything, there was there was that accusation by implication, right? Yeah. So you're saying that I'm, well, for not not thinking things through, not respecting people, like. So his protector part wanted to close that window. Yeah. And yet, if you were to step back and look at the whole system, it's kind of the protest movement has been highlighting, you know, the, 
the police system has been set up from slave patrols, literal slave patrols. The whole structure is based on that. So that's not about freedom. That's not American as far as I'm concerned. I usually tell, you know, border guards, so-called border guards, the fictitious status borders, if you guys don't like freedom, just pack up your stuff and go to North Korea. Now, this is in my less nonviolent communication, uh, <laughs> you know, mindset, yeah. because it's, it's, it's a hot button for me. I was detained for six hours, 12 miles north of the Mexico border in California, and, and they deported my friend from Indonesia who was just with me to go take pictures of wildflowers. But we got detained for six hours waiting for her sister to bring information about her student visa she had, right? So she's legal. And they said, it's not enough, so let's deport you. So I had to follow her to the de deportation facility. And she went in, and I was out there in my vehicle just going, like, uh, this is unbelievable. This is America, right? Fortunately, half an hour later, she comes walking out. I'm like, what the hell happened? And she's, well, they had a change of shift, and the next guy didn't want to have to deal with all the paperwork involved in my deportation, so they just let me go. This is America. Yeah, it's, it's stunning, these systems, and... I don't know if you heard any of them. So recent Joe Rogan podcast, when he brought on two guys from the Innocence Project. Yeah, I watched that one. Is, yeah, I watched, I heard part of it, but it was really you know, heartbreaking. Rogan was tearing up and telling these stories about the, uh, again, the so-called justice system. And they're, they're admirably trying to help people who have been wrongly convicted. But mm -hmm. what, what, I, what I was noticing what I was observing during that conversation was I felt sad because these, these two men from the Innocence Project not having the economic clarity and the understanding about what is possible to have something like private courts, to have third-party courts that would be not, in, you know, not having this monopoly incentive structure. And they're, they're, like, they're yearning to have justice and restoration and fairness Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's they're talking about oh I have some ideas for reform of the system, but they're not striking at the root, and it's just tragic that that's that's the clarity we need, you know, to really solve these problems. Yeah, that's the paradigm shift, and yeah, things won't won't really improve until that takes place. Otherwise, it's going to be more treading of water, hopefully not going under. Um, this defunding the police has the beginnings of that, you know, but the question is, what, what is the philosophy underlying it? And do we want to engage in more of the same domination just in different ways and continue more of the racist components, just shifting the nature of the identities involved? Um, but we need to get rid of domination systems. That would really change things for everyone in amazing ways. Like people have no idea because most of these costs are unseen. Like sure, if you get thrown in jail and you uh, experience the worst end of the, the tip of the spear of the state, that's one thing. But most of the costs remain unseen by most people. Like the decimation, decimation of the value of our currency, which is orchestrated by the state. 
you know, the value has lost nearly 100% of its value since the inception of the Federal Reserve. Imagine what the value of the dollar would be without that inflation of the currency and diminishment, the devaluation over time. It's, it's almost yeah. unimaginable. Like, I think Murray Rothbard did some back-of-the-envelope calculations about if we actually had a gold standard, if we hadn't left the gold standard, what the value of money would be. Like, each unit would be worth so much more. Maybe, I think he said 10 times more. It could be yeah. 100 times more. Like, what does that do for an economy if people have 10 or 100 times the wealth? Not just the, the, the monetary amounts, but the, what the buying power of it. Yeah. You know, so these are the things that can be highlighted. And, um, yeah, there's a lot of reluctance to, to challenge the, the basic premises of the police system because it, it reflects the traumas of our childhoods, the punitive stuff, right? The distrust. You're guilty till you prove your innocence. Even though the rhetoric is you're innocent till proven guilty. But, uh, I mean, just look at the things that happen that are so unjust for people. Keeping people in cages because they're not paying their, their bail fees, right? Or held yeah. in contempt of court by not re- revealing information. That was, uh, I covered that on a podcast too. The longest standing contempt of court incarceration was like 14 years, I think. Might still be going on, I don't know. But this guy, all it was for is he didn't want to reveal um, the information about a bank account that his wife accused him of like hoarding the alimony money or, or something in. And the same thing could arise with you know cryptocurrency as well. If you don't hand over the private keys, we're just going to keep you in a jail cell until we can actually try you. Like that is just immense, monstrous injustice. Look what's happened to Ross Albrecht. You know, two life sentences, I guess, for running a website on the dark net. It's all for the common good. It's all, and it's just by the means. Yeah, but I don't think people are buying so, that shit anymore. You think? Other than the real law and, law and order types, in quotes, law and order. I think it's unspoken rationalization, though, at least from the, 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 the humans in government. That this is the role to, I'm doing my public servant, my public service, and without this absolute demand then it would be things would be chaos i have to mm-hmm. come in here and again it goes back to trauma if uh as if this what they're doing isn't chaotic yeah totally yeah. disrupting peace harmony and love in a society no restorative justice no repair work being done you know the recidivism rate is off the charts from this you know retributive system punitive system adversarial system you know, it's not in line with whole wholeness and healing and empathy. And I think a lot of the people in the, the protest movement are inclined to restorative justice. Like they know that, that phrase at least. Yeah. So that's like restoring communities back to health. So Shelby incorporate some psychedelic assisted therapy there too. Absolutely. You want to talk about that? Yeah. How was your trip yesterday? 
Oh, it was profound. <laughs> uh-huh. Well, do you want to share your intentions? Well, uh, one of the intentions was to cultivate compassion, try to incorporate compassion for my parents and sort of the cycle of trauma, I think. Mm-hmm. So I'll share this one, I'll share this one profound moment, um, which we were listening to, I, I put on the last movement of the third symphony by Gustav Mahler, ah. which is entitled what love tells me. And I believe it's the most profound piece of art music that exists. Fantastic. And so I had this, I had this amazing experience listening to this work, which I already have so much uh, connection to. And I've had, incredible experiences emotional experiences simply listening to it and then i we were listening to it while peaking in this this psychedelic experience um Mm -hmm. you know it was the three of us we were all seeking the same there's a very safe space to to seek personal growth and and work on ourselves and create that sense of love and compassion so it was really, was, uh, really. It was helpful. written in 1896, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. So. Era. Yeah, post-romantic. Yeah. So. Yeah, it, it was incredible. Um, at the sort of, we were all started crying, and and there's there's sort of these fluctuations in the movement of just soothing love, but then like these heart-wrenching, heavy dissonance. Uh-huh. Um, and so you kind of I see had this... his struggles as he's composing this, huh? Oh, yeah. Yeah, so I had this um, integration of all these elements, all this, this emotion, and all these thoughts and perspectives kind of came into this one enormous eruption of, of emotion for me where I was seeing, I was thinking about the nature of love through this symphony. And then the, the mushroom was, was enhancing and exacerbating all of that love. Mm-hmm. And while I'm thinking, I'm thinking about the nature of, of intergenerational transfer and begin this mourning process as this dissonant music is striking. I'm like mourning the the violence in the world, and then and and mm. the and the childhood trauma. And I'm thinking about like my like 13 year old self and some you know a particular experience where I was feeling f- afraid of my father when he was upset and enraged, and and then I had this like profound. Um, outburst of emotion and uh, when I had this um, realization and this knowledge of this moment of clarity basically of seeing the because his parents my, my dad's parents both went through Auschwitz in concentration camp and then they they um, had my dad in 1948 which is a few years after the war and I haven't I don't have many details about like what it was like for him his first few years of life, but I've sort of been conjecturing 
you know, what potential, based on my knowledge now of trauma, and I can, I'm just, can imagine just um, the very, very, just the trauma of the, the concentration camp and how that, just that experience alone, let alone his parents' um, own childhood traumas, right? But yeah. just going through the, tra- the concentration camp and that trauma and how it must, they must have been in, in trying to recover in, the, in those first few years. Uh, and when they had him and he was living in, in Europe and um, his first five years of life before they came over to North America and Canada and eventually Brooklyn. But anyway, I just, I've been sort of, uh, I was like, had this moment yesterday where I just grieved this cycle. Like I was grieving the profound terror of just the concentration camp and the whole, all the psychological um, elements that are going into that and knowing from my study of all this stuff, how much it's just, it's just this um, replication of everyone's, Ever, it's you know, and knowing about like Hitler's childhood, having having read Alice Miller, her book for your own good, and she details Hitler's childhood, and and connects that to the reason that we have violence in the world it is like these 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 practice these um top down parenting strategies, and I was just had this this yeah. this eruption of grieving and mourning of the very existing need for mourning. Yeah, the very existence of this cycle of trauma, you know, it was a very yeah. compassionate experience. I'm guessing that Alice Miller didn't say that Hitler had a very self-esteeming childhood. No. <laughs> it's yeah. pretty brutal. Uh, However, to, like to take this to a meta level, you know, there's like in, in the psychology world, they actually want to equate some of the characteristics of self-esteem with psychopathology, right? So some people in some of these research camps would say that Hitler had high self-esteem. If you can believe that, like that is really distorting the definition, isn't it? Yeah. It's not Brandon's definition. No, such a far stretch from it. Yeah. That's just incredibly profound, isn't it? Like, to mourn all the needless suffering that's been happening. Yeah. Yeah, I did a bit of that too on on the last trip that I took, which was a not a fun trip. Like it wasn't even a trip actually. Like I talked about it on the Healthy Mindful Body podcast where I got like a a poison from, it might've been a mold on these truffles or just been some different alkaloids than what's normal, but I took like double the dose and I thought I was going to go really deep, but I didn't go anywhere and I just felt really sick. But like five hours afterwards when it started to lift, that's when I started to trip, you know? And the one part of it, I basically envisioned thousands and thousands and thousands of human bodies naked and butchered. And it just brought such utter sadness and grief you know just to be able to step back and see the spectrum of human suffering and what it, what humans have done to other humans just absolutely brutal it brought me brought me into my knees and i was just like wow immersed in that 
visceral sense of all of that carnage. And yeah, that was a pretty profound part of that trip. You know, I, guess, I would guess if all the, the, the world's military planners were to have that kind of trip, it might have them rethink some things, wouldn't it? Yeah, if they had, if they had a healthy environment set and setting and then have the guidance of the mushroom and then maybe the guidance of some non-communication trainers and mm-hmm. getting the some healing. of the, yeah, just, just having the, aff- the, the uh, affirmation of, of one's needs, you know, that are often just completely not identified, just push underneath everything. Mm-hmm. I was trying to do that, so I was, after that moment yesterday, I was then helping, I was coaching my friend a bit, trying to offer some of this framework of, that we've been discussing right here with NBC and IFS, and trying to help him create, because one of his intentions was to create more empathy, he's very, he's a very um, strong, assertive person, and he's definitely compassionate as well, but He's looking to continue to nourish that side of him. So we're trying to create some integration there. there. And I was just trying to help guide him through like some of the, like the self-talk stuff, like recognizing, hey, like all, all the voices you have with trying to, to have ambition or competitiveness or assertiveness and or any any of the inner critics you have, like they're all they're all there trying to get your needs met. Like we can open these giraffe ears, like we can widen these giraffe ears, and we can we can see that everything, all the thoughts in our head, all the actions we're taking, they're all there to create to get needs met so that we can flourish. It's all there out of love. Like no, none of the parts, none of our parts are there. And for a malicious reason, and like the the mushroom really assisted me when I was when I was guiding him, and I was like just feeling this. I was feeling that that love that like NVC with the giraffe ears concept tach, uh, taps into, and then the mushroom really enhanced all that. It was really beautiful. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, they are very powerful windows into the inner world, making connections that no, don't norm, normally happen, right, with our default mode system in operation. Yeah. It's like the sort of constant vigilance that we have about our surroundings, if, are they safe? Um, and, you know, the, the thought stream that we have, the inner chatter, if you will, and the social connections, all that stuff is default mode system. It's definitely adaptive and serves its evolutionary purpose. And when we imbibe in psychedelics, we can expand into facets of the mind that we typically only experience like in dream states, maybe intense meditative states, or holotropic breathing that can induce some similar effects. But 
it really just opens up all the heart aspects, you know, heartfelt aspects of ourselves and what really matters, profound insights about things and insights about traumas and the reasons for constructing the strategies that we have and how to actually heal them. That's kind of part of the integration work afterwards to, to make sense of our insights so that we can actually integrate and feel more whole afterwards. Yeah. Yeah. I anticipate continuing to integrate these coming weeks and make sure I keep doing my journaling. Mm -hmm. So yeah, there's just, you know, that's one of the looking out at the world. That's one of the, elements of the world that I'm optimistic about with some of the research that's coming out and this is becoming more, you know, a little bit more mainstream and accepting the culture and yeah, people talking about it on podcasts and some, you know, Denver decriminalized psilocybin and mm -hmm. I'm hopeful. Just... I'm feeling hopeful that in the next 10, 20 years that there could be that transformation. And if that, if we can tap into that, like this is like a, it's almost, there's no, I mean, there's no, there's no shortcuts in the self-development stuff, but it really, it can, it can accelerate the process. Yeah. Cause it dissolves the protector parts or makes them feel comfortable with stepping aside, you know? And maybe one of the intentions for people that just start with this process is to set an intention to give empathy to that protector part about why there's so much reluctance to step aside, you know, gets back to that trust issue once again. And the sense of vulnerability as well. We don't yeah. want to re-experience our trauma. And, you know, some of the bodily experiences like yoga and even meditation can kind of trigger us back into those um, pre-verbal conditions. You know, the the procedural memories are always there. So we need to be sort of attuned to our sense of vulnerability and be able to be in a safe set and setting in the process. But yeah, I think that the movement itself is a beneficial thing for humanity. I just hope that the folks by and large in the movement really connect with the need to dissolve systems of domination that have been sort of baked into our culture that we're all used to, like you say, the water that we're swimming in. And I've not seen nearly enough of that in all my interactions with people in the movement. Like there's just not that, that integration yet. And even in, you know, the Ken Wilber world of integral theory and spiral dynamics, I read both of those books. Spiral dynamics, I think preceded Wilbur's Integral Theory. I'm not sure, but they come from Claire Graves, I guess. He was the first academic to start talking about these stages of human development um, and states of consciousness. And um, neither Don nor Ken strike at the root as far as the, the course of systems. They somehow want to include parts of them that are beneficial in some way, not realizing that it's all based on unprocessed trauma. So even well, the people advocating for Teal 
have some integration to do, you know? And so it just shows that this process of integration is kind of a lifelong pursuit. And the more that we can integrate in ourselves, the more easy it will probably be to integrate the things external to us and the systems that we're in. At least it'll make it less difficult. Yeah, hopefully there can be a sort of compounding effect there where, you know, I was thinking about it yesterday, like, oh, if I can do one, one of these, like, one of these trips every few months or so for 10 years, that, like, how will that compound in, in a beneficial way? And can, so maybe someone who is like one of these um, premier psychedelic people advocating it, maybe they need to continue to grow themselves and they have some groundwork laid, but then there's still more to access it. So hopefully like just the movement at large can snowball positively, but yeah, we definitely need a sense of philosophy and economic clarity to, to come in there. Mm-hmm. So hopefully they'll listen to our podcast, right? <laughs> yeah, that would be nice. New ideas are always great, as long as they're re- leading us into a world of more flourishing and less, yeah. you know, coercion and domination thinking and the four Ds once again. Yeah, it's um, it's one of the hardest things to work on, right? The most complex thing, right, is human change cultural change, systemic change, because it involves so many different things. It involves everything, practically, at least on the level of human consciousness. So that's why it's not happened yet. It's not exactly an easy process. Mm-hmm. Well, at the same time, it's like, what? going back to the sphere of control, like, we might as well start where we are. You know, each of us individually can take assessment of where we are and also take acceptance for the facts for where we are and, you know, take that deep breath and realize that, you know, your childhood was your childhood and your traumas are your traumas. However, you know, everyone has different degrees of that, but safe to say if you were coming up in our culture that you have some some things to process. And so we don't have to have shame about that. We can take acceptance and then one day at a time engage in some practices to begin that process of transformation in our own lives. And hopefully that can serve as a light to other people and we can keep on supporting each other through our own, our own internal locus of control. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And having that determination to deal with whatever comes in that process is really key. You know, the seventh pillar of self-esteem to the motivation to practice all the pillars. Yeah. I was thinking about the metaphor of climbing a mountain, right? You can't get to the top in just one step or a couple of giant leaps. It's it's just a methodical journey, and you can enjoy the beautiful sights along the way. And maybe psychedelics would be like getting in a 
a, a drone for humans and just flying to the top right quick and landing on the top and oh, seeing see, yeah. all the things that are up there. And then, and then as you're coming down, it takes you back to the bottom to base camp. But you still have those visions that you saw at the top. So that can inspire you to keep on that trail to the summit. Yeah, and realizing if you keep taking one step at a time, you, you can get to the summit. Oftentimes mm -hmm. we just think that we, oftentimes we think that it's such an insurmountable climb that we'll just stay in the status quo. We'll just stay in the comfort zone. We don't play the long game. That's, you know, again, like I was saying about like, what if you did some of these psychedelic experiences over the course of the decades, and, or if you just engaged in 10 minutes of meditation a day over decades, you could you could have incredible results. I mean, or some of these just daily habits. Because all we, all we ever have is, the, you know, the moment and the hour and the day. Um, so just trying to find ways to incorporate some of these habits like journaling and meditation and yoga and therapy and sentence completion exercises and or even just listening to a podcast like this. Or, mm -hmm. uh I mean, all these things can can compound, and and that's like my that's my optimistic hope for, uh, with my message of this show is like, you do your your thing to compound, and then that can all compound off of each other. Each person doing their own thing can can snowball the world at large, but we yeah. have to be willing. We want to be willing to to take that one step each day. Mm hmm. Yeah, we're we're gonna proceed through life anyway, so might as well make it. Yeah, the time will pass anyway. Yeah, exactly. Our hearts will keep on beating until they don't. So, what do we do in the meantime? Well, this has been a very meaningful conversation, and I'm really grateful for your time today, Wes. And I think it's we've we've laid out a lot of these different layers for the listener to yeah to contemplate a lot of rabbit holes to go down i'm really appreciative of the conversation too it's, it's been really stimulating thanks a lot <laughs>